Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. Firstly, I hope those of you listening to this show are safe and well in these difficult times. Few events in our lives will demonstrate how much we rely on one another as a collaborative and supportive global community than this current situation. I'm not going to pretend to know what each of you is going through at the moment. There are some of you who have personal battles that this kind of situation is likely to exacerbate. Please reach out to us if you need someone to listen to or to offer support in some way. Some of you are on the front line in a range of different roles to keep things running and doing your best for our sick. You have my profound respect. At the risk of sounding like some sort of propaganda recording from a bygone era, the rest of us are hopefully doing our part to help ease the strain on our respective health services as well as protecting others. Although I'm doing something of a plate-spinning act back here with my various responsibilities, I'm determined to up my content to keep you informed and entertained in some way, martial arts related. Please get in touch if you have any suggestions or feedback. I will discuss all current things CCMA, including upcoming work that you might find interesting, at the end of this episode. Speaking of this episode, I'm delighted to announce it's my long-awaited discussion with practical karate teacher and self-defence law specialist Lee Sims. Back in 2018, when I started this podcast, I wanted to run through the basic areas of self-protection and this was going to include an episode on the law and self-defence. Knowing this was Lee's area of expertise, I felt that it would be best for him to answer my questions. I've been an avid promoter of Lee's work, including his book, his teaching and his podcast for several years now. Ever since I was a child, I have been something of a genre geek. My love of comics and various franchises brought me regularly into contact with crossover events. Therefore, when Lee first talked to me about the possibility of doing an interview on his show, I thought I would jump at the opportunity to host him here too and create our own crossover event. With that in mind, let's not waste any more time and get on with the show. Okay, hi Lee, welcome to the show. Uh, you are the first person I have actually interviewed on the Club Chimera podcast. Uh, I've had a few sound bites before from different people, but this is the first time I've actually tried to do an interview. So all going good. And of course, it's an historical event because it's the first podcast I've done in uh, isolation stroke lockdown uh, in view of the COVID-19 uh, global pandemic situation. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jamie. It's a, a double honour then. So thanks for being on the podcast and it's great to be the first guest. Great. Okay. So um, I thought um, one of the things I want to start off with is um, obviously I'm citing your legal background on this one, Lee. I, I find that uh, when it comes to uh, martial arts, one of the worst questions I get given is uh, define martial arts. And I've had big arguments with so many from martial artists doing this. And I've often thought it's a real pointless question most of the time and, uh, and that is all with uh, massive respect to the wonderful um, uh, T.W. Smith who gave me that question and really really stumped me because uh, uh, it, it really is I find it very, very difficult defining martial arts but one of the things I feel that a lot of us can separate from martial arts even though there is considerable overlap is uh, self-defense um, and uh, the reason for that being is that although certain systems are definitely founded on what we would define as being self-defense as in uh, civilian uh, self-protection um, the term self-defense is a legal one 
And uh, I find that um, that's the first thing I like to make sure that anyone, any people who train with me, I, I say to them, well, uh, you can't, um, there is no legal term for uh, karate or kickboxing or uh, whatever martial art you happen to be studying. But if you say self-defense, that's something that could be understood by a police officer, um, by people in the courts, by lawyers. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's defined as a legal term. And of course, um, you being um, your, your background as uh, in, in the legal in the legal um, community um, and your profession um, you are you're are you, are you, a, are you a lawyer or a solicitor or what's the, what's the term in the UK yeah so so yeah I'm, I'm a solicitor which I guess is also you know if we're going to define terms would also be a lawyer as well the same issue with defining terms which you've mentioned about martial arts again I want to start this this conversation talking about how we define terms and as a solicitor one thing I do a lot of in my you know day-to-day -day job is drafting documents and making sure they're clear and concise. And without having a, a term which everyone agrees upon, that can be really difficult. So one of the things I find um, interesting about the term one martial arts and from myself as a karate guy, even the term karate can be really difficult to like pin down and, and define in a way which everybody understands. Like, like I think you've mentioned before, you know, everyone's got different ideas of what martial arts are, creates like a set list or specific list of what makes a martial art or what is a martial art can be really difficult. I find the same thing holds true for karate itself and probably other arts like Kung Fu and, and other instructors will have a similar thought behind that as well. But like you said, the term self-defense, again, I, I, I use it, but I use it in the legal sense as well. But I know a lot of people, when they say self-defense, they don't necessarily mean the, the legal definition. So, I mean, that's where I am with that. When I use self-defense, I, I mean it as a you know, legal definition as well. Yeah, excellent. And I think that is, um, you know, th that's a really good guideline. I mean, as you say, other people have different interpretations of it. But um, my view on that is that probably uh, I'm probably a little, little less charitable than you are on that one, because my attitude is um, when I say to people, you're talking about self-defense. Well, that is something that um, you can interpret it as much as you like. But uh, if you're going to be in a situation uh, where, where you're going to have to defend whatever you did to a court, you're going to have to defend it to a, a, to a jury, um, when you use the term self-defense you you don't have ownership of that that is uh you know that is that, that is something that is defined by law by um by law in, in every country yeah I, I think i think that goes to the idea of that if you're saying you're doing self-defense that that term when you say you're doing self-defense or you've acted in self-defense that is a you know definitive word um and I, I think if we just go into this a second so if we look at some of the misconceptions which we find in self-defense um, yes. I don't know if you want to come up with a few which you've come across and we can clear them up now, maybe. Yeah, okay. Um, well, um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly um, um, from, uh, you know, the classic, uh, you know, problem that we have off different people is sometimes is, is in, um, they either think that, uh, they can't do something in self in self defence. That so many things are not defendable. So you know the preemptive strike is the obvious one, isn't it? I mean, if you, first of all, you've got that, that uh, 1988 Beckford uh, versus the Queen, which is always uh, which is always cited for preemptive striking. And we've had people even try in the martial arts world to say that um, you know you cannot use a preemptive strike. Then you also get the other end of the scale where people think that you can you can get away with a, a number of different situations that would not be defined as uh, legally defensible. Uh, um, preemptive striking i think when it comes to preemptive striking and um, i think beckford case would be a good one to look at actually is that i think the way it's defined in law is that you, there's nothing stopping you from doing a preemptive strike if the situation um, requires one 
So it's not a blanket rule that you always can do a preemptive strike, which is where you get some people who take that to say you can never do it. Um, but then again, at the same point, it's, it's also not saying that you can always do a preemptive strike. It's, it's one of those things where if the situation requires a preemptive strike, then you can preemptively strike. Um, and that's like the legal principle and the legal idea behind things. And I get two questions a lot, which would be nice to just clear up as we're having a chat here. Um, one is that there's no requirement for martial artists to you know, confirm that they do martial arts before they defend themselves. And I always try and, if you picture that in your mind, you can start to see how ridiculous this is. If you're being, you know, you're being mugged at you know, knife point and you're like, well, okay, before I defend myself and break your arm, and you know, I must let you know that I've been studying martial arts for five years. Or, or if you've only done two martial art classes, you have to say, you know, I'm not very good at this, um, but I've, I've been doing martial art for, for two weeks, so you know, I might be able to defend myself against you here. I, I just find it, when, when you think about it, it gets quite silly, so you can understand that you know, there's no need to, to say you, you, you do martial arts before you defend yourself. If you practice scenarios in, in, a, in a realistic way, instantly you realize you know with the adrenaline pumping with what's happening and you know it's usually the the shot which you don't see which starts things is, is is that you'll never have time to even explain this anyway to anybody so i think once you train in a realistic way you start to see how much of a nonsense this kind of idea is yeah no no absolutely and uh, yeah that really does highlight and say why, why you would be you would uh, be passionate about um the reality-based area of martial arts i suppose that would that would influence you because as, as you say it kind of uh, you know through training through those methods it would highlight um how ridiculous the whole um legal situation would be if, if we believed that you would have to declare your martial arts skills which also um marries up with that myth about your hands being licensed for to lethal to be lethal weapons. I mean, I don't think you hear that so much these days. That was certainly something I, I grew up with. And, and I remember people coming up with all sorts of excuses. I even heard somebody saying that they were a boxer and that um, I, know I, I couldn't defend myself in that situation because I'd get prosecuted because I'd be using my boxing skills. I mean, often you see it associated with uh, karate and the oriental martial arts and um, the, uh, the sort of... Um, should we say even the, the racist interpretation in the Western world of of uh, of, the, of the mystique of the East and all that all this uh, yeah. business, which I, I think um, it comes from this idea of of uh, licensing, um, and the martial arts world has pandered that to a degree. According to um, Steve Timperley from uh, from Kiwap, uh, he, uh, this idea stems from the days of the Saint. You know, the early first season of the Saint in the '60s, a TV show with Roger Moore, uh, where his hands were licensed as deadly weapons. I'd have to look into that. I mean, I'm such a geek with all this sort of stuff. But well, who would actually who would know the answer to that? And that would be my auntie, who's you know, black belt as well, and. Uh, and I'll give her a shout out here because Lisa Tunstall, she's one of the biggest Saint fans. And um, even though it's not my generation, because I spent a lot of time with her and she loved the show, I'm, she'll definitely know the answer to that. So. Oh, oh I'm, I mean, I go straight down that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 know, I never allow that as an excuse. Uh, I mean, I, I watch all sorts of stuff that's way beyond my generation. I mean, I'm a Marx Brothers fan and, and a Tony Hancock fan. And uh, I love all the old stuff as well. And, you know, and I, think, I think Robert Lindsay does it very very well in a uh, um, in an episode of extras where he where he gets frustrated that people don't remember him from the 1970s um show where he um 
um, and uh, he was there saying, well, um, you all know who Queen Victoria is, but none of us have been around at that time. So, yeah, that, that's kind of my view on that. But, uh, yeah, I did see some of the second series of The Saints, I think, the, when it was recreated. But, uh, again, it's Steve Timberley who was the one who put that to me. So, yeah, please check in with your aunt. I'd, I'd love to know if that is the origin of our myth for licensing. But I think the martial arts world has done, um, you know, that they've helped encourage that a bit because the the birth of the license booklet and uh you know we've and a lot of us been guilty of doing that i mean you know i used to call them licenses at my club which essentially was um a combination of your insurance um slip um and uh and the rest of it was just like a grading record or records of seminars and stuff like that but it's done in a nice little passport looking booklet and we get to call that our martial arts license uh, so i think they kind of are um uh, jumped onto that one as well so there, there is something uh, around there so even though the people who are issuing these licenses don't don't necessarily buy into the whole got to license your hands as deadly weapons um old idea they uh, they certainly semi-encouraged it with the idea of having licenses yeah yeah I, and I, I think you said you weren't sure how you know you know potent that that myth is at the moment and i, I can tell you you know we're in 2020 now as march we're recording this i i've had that question in person during one of my legal seminars so it, it's still alive and kicking definitely oh yeah i can imagine just we will not die well it's funny enough you know we get into all that i mean i don't, don't mean to um tangent off too much but only uh, last night i was watching all the myths with regards to uh, the covid19 um, pandemic and uh, they were doing some myth busting and i saw two things that popped on there one was the use of garlic and the other was the use of silver uh, so I'm looking at this, I'm going, right, so we are now in the 21st century and we're still having to tell people that using garlic is not a, it's not a way to ward off uh, this evil virus and that, and that silver isn't the best option that we could uh, be putting into our bloodstream to, to, to get rid of it. You know, we, we are back down the, the whole vampire mythology again yeah. and yeah. werewolves, if you like. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. It's both, right? Garlic's your, your, your vampires and silver's your, your werewolf, so... They're, they're never going to die. I think these these tropes and these these. Um, yeah, it's the same thing with the martial arts. As I said, the point being is that it still just comes up with the martial arts. Just when you 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 think you've got so far in society with martial arts, then suddenly these things pop up once again. And that, and I've found that when I've been researching the stuff for my bullshit so I've come, I've you know I've gone into the web and um, and, and looked at different uh, sources. And I've got to look at all the obviously the, the sources for the people who are producing a lot of the, the nonsense out there. And I keep and I keep finding this, and, and I find that people are writing this in the present day things that i thought were you know we'd, we, we'd put to bed and we'd finished it and uh, we can move on now and uh, and i think about these discussions a lot of times you know often i'll begin a, i'll even begin um when i begin a seminar and uh particularly free seminars where people just walk in from other martial arts at, at events and that and you, you'll begin to you'll be really really uh, keen i'll be happy to uh, you know cover all the new material that i'm into now at the moment all the stuff that we've developed all the new drills and just before i start it i suddenly realized that about 80 percent of the people there don't realize the issue with regards to preemptive striking they don't know whether it's uh, legally defensible or also whether why it's tactically beneficial to practice preemptive striking and proactive training and, uh, and then i'm going to be spending the, the next uh, my hour slot or whatever if i'm at one of these events doing a free thing going through all this going through the fence going through preemption um testing preemption proving it to them all that you know they're blocking at uh, close distances it's not a very very good tactic and i've got to go back down that again so yeah you, you often have it and as i said you know i was at um 
Uh, just recently, I was I was teaching at uh, with, uh, at the school, at a local school, um, where I'm always running a mixed martial arts uh, class before uh, before all the lockdown happened. And uh, yeah, I was getting all the questions with regards to pressure points and um, you know th things I really really I'd hoped we'd kind of moved on to, and they were only confined to small circles. But yeah, we're still getting that. So it's interesting. Then, so to say, from the legal perspective, we're still getting people if, expecting. Um, saying that they have to notify people that they've got martial arts skills believing that uh, that, that they have to license their hands and feet as lethal weapons um, or that uh, if you use a martial art you know it'll be judged as being GBH because you are yeah. you know your body is a weapon uh, so uh, and, and, you, and so the people who say this is easy to think of it as being you know stupid people and I always say this to people say you know critical thinking um, you know it's, it's a skill and it, no matter how intelligent you are you're not impervious to irrational thought and, and myths you know there's so many things that you know that go that otherwise you'd think rational people who, who really they sat down and really thought through these things never mind whether they've got any legal training or if they've got any um uh, martial arts experience whatever but if you just stop forward uh, stop and uh, apply some just rational thinking you think this is ridiculous you know this is you know this is quite absurd but uh, they, they just take it on board because somewhere it, it's got in uh, like a virus i suppose yeah and, and just to go back to some of the things regarding self-defense and some of the misconceptions, like you said, some people are afraid of using certain kinds of moves or techniques or using so much force because they're afraid they're going to be in trouble with the courts. That, that's one side of things. But another side of thing I see cropping up a lot more these days, and again, it, it's that lack of critical thinking, but on the other end of the spectrum, is people who are saying that they don't care about what they do because their safety is more important than the law and you you can't have both so so they say you know yeah i think we both heard the phrase you know, it's better to be judged by 12 than carried by six yes um, if you have if you had a choice um you, you want you'd rather be on trial than than you know than in a, in a coffin and and the people i mean i, I saw i'm not gonna you know name names or anything like that but i saw a recent video of somebody showing a demonstration of a series of techniques against um against like a bag or one of those bob dummies where they were hitting with punchy strikes and then there was like six or seven or eight different different stabbing techniques performed. Um, <laughs> Overkill. <laughs> yeah, with an explanation of, you know, yes, you know, you, yes, I understand it might be, you know, illegal, but, you know, this is what I have to do to defend myself. This is what I'm going to do. And the, the question I always ask, and I, I never get a decent response back because I think people start to realize really quickly that they aren't applying any critical thought, is if, if they really don't care about the law, why aren't they advocating to their students that they carry a gun and shoot people? It yeah, seems a exactly. really extreme example, but yeah. if, if your thought is the law doesn't matter, I'll do what I need to to, to be safe, then you know, shooting somebody fits that criteria. But they, they automatically say, oh, no, I wouldn't do that because that, that is against the law. I'm like, well, well, so is stabbing somebody eight or nine times or stomping on someone's head when they're already on the ground and they're not going to defend themselves anyway from that point. And all these things you can train in a way which is both you know, legally justifiable and practical. And I don't think there has to be this, this binary choice. Which Looking at here is a false dichotomy, aren't we? When people yeah. say I'd rather, in, in a lot of the time when they're saying I'd rather be carried by six than tried, uh, sorry, I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by six. It, it's a false dichotomy. The, the idea that uh, you've only got these two choices. You know, you're going to either be, um, you're either going to be killed or, um, or, or if you defend yourself, you're going to be up in court. And the, and the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, that's not the case at all. Uh, there was the, uh, and then there's been, you know, 
know, there's been plenty of examples where, and again, we, we often always hear the stories where the, um, the supposed miscarriages of justice and, and real miscarriages of justice that happen here and there. But for the most cases, you don't hear all the, all the times when people have successfully defended themselves and uh, the, the case has never gone to court or people just haven't been charged. I mean, it wasn't the, there was a pensioner a couple of years ago um, who, um, you know, he stab, he, I think he, he stabbed somebody who was coming into his home. Um, I'll have to look it up. It was in the UK and uh, he was arrested immediately on the spot. Um, but the whole thing was was wrapped up and finished within about three days. I mean, there was a big outcry, like, oh, no, he's going to get, you know, this guy's going to get done. This is a classic example. You can't, this poor guy in his 70s can't defend himself in his home. And the truth of the matter is that the police officer on site would have had no choice but to arrest the guy. But that doesn't mean that that person is now going to get a criminal record, that that person can have to go to court. Um, but, you know, he was, um, but it, that's just procedure. Yeah, yeah. there's two, two things you, you just brought out there, which I'd like to just to delve into just a little bit more one is yeah you're, you're spot on there right it's there's a difference between the the legal rules and principles which need to be applied to determine whether self-defense is in play or not um and then there's the you know the rules and the procedure um police officers um will apply when they decide whether or not to arrest somebody and and they're different levels so um you can perfectly act in complete self-defense um, ticking all the correct boxes from a legal definition, but that doesn't mean you're not going to be arrested if, if a police officer is either at the scene or even seeing what you've done. Um, they're, they're different things. And one thing I get sometimes on my courses is I'll explain to some some scenarios, some real life examples, some real life cases, um, and I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll put it to the, the group I'm with and I'll ask them, you know, do you think this person acted in self defence? Now the answer will be yes. But I do get a lot of you know, police officers and, and people in that kind of industry on my courses, and they say to me a lot, well, not that I disagree with you, Lee, but I would arrest this person at this point. And my, my response is always that they're, they're separate things. You know, if you're getting arrested, that doesn't necessarily mean, even if somebody's witnessed the whole thing, that you haven't acted in self-defense. So there's a different threshold for what a police officer will have when they you know, um, come to a scene and decide whether you need to be taken away or arrested compared with, you know, have you actually committed a criminal offence or not, which is the next stage of what I wanted to look at with you. And you're, you're completely right. I think the amount of people who have been um, arrested for um, assaulting somebody or attacking somebody, who then claim they acted in self-defence, which then gets um, sent to the CPS and decide there's enough evidence to charge that person, um, and that person then gets um, um, found guilty and was put in prison or fined that's a very low percentage and i think it's it's between one and three percent of all cases um yeah, it's, it's a small amount of people i haven't got the exact figure but it, it's yeah, google yeah. and it's around i think one to five yeah, i didn't realize it was uh, i didn't realize it was low as that it doesn't uh, it doesn't completely surprise me but uh, but yeah that's that's, that's uh, pretty impressive yeah, we'll have to we'll have to uh, look it up for, for the statistics on that but yeah i mean this is often the thing um you you find in the law we we're, we're always in the papers always often report the unusual this is always the case on, on the legal um, side of it but unfortunately with your receiving that kind of thing on a, on a regular basis you then interpret that as being the usual the 70 year old man who um has been arrested for trying to defend himself in his uh, in his home that that's front page news okay mm -hmm. three weeks later when it's decided that you know we're, we're letting this case go and there's nothing to it there's no need to put that on the front page so people don't see this they only see the, the first half and i think that that's 
that helps to you know you know keep the wheel spinning and and keeping people not not paranoid but with this misconception of of, of how things work in the legal system yeah i mean and again um so the, and also on the other end of the scale of course we're looking at um the, you know those who advocate pretty much illegal um self-defense techniques which kind of brings us on to this the, the, the uh, point that uh, um we went over in our, in a, our previous private discussion um, with regards to finishing moves because this is something that's been raised to me by um, other martial arts teachers uh, in a lot of uh, traditional martial arts um, expect uh, a type of finishing technique um, and sometimes sometimes I think it is connected to uh, competition it's uh, it's got a marriage with competition um, with point sparring and, and that side of it all when someone will do a takedown and they have to do uh, that finishing move I think it's in, you find that sometimes in, in uh, point sparring karate I'm, I'm not 100% sure about the, 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 the rules on that side of it I certainly know with Muay Thai that you are allowed to strike somebody as as you're taking them down and that that that's that allows you to, to you know to score that move and you'll find some muay thai um some nakmoys will um do a takedown and then they'll they'll show a knee strike as the person hits the deck rather than actually execute the knee strike so the judges show that their intention was to strike you know it's because it's not a grappling art that's the whole point of it and likewise i think in karate you know you sweep somebody and then you do your your reverse uh, punch to the body and that you know it shows that you've uh, um you know that's that, that that's your intention to the move and then that then gets moved over into self-defense training where um and now we have the issue with um do you strike when do you strike a downed person and again this i think comes back to what we were discussing about what we said about principles there um you know what what is justifiable to, um when you've got your attacker um downed uh, and you're and you're now in uh, the prone position you're in a strong position rather um and they're and they're in a prone position um what um what now is legally defensible just before I answer that, um, I just want to go back to, like, I, yeah, I, I'm with you here. I, I think this idea of finishing moves comes from the, you know, the combat sport, the competitive kind of training we, we all do. And um, I, I think I think it was you who I can't remember if it was in an article or in a video you did, or even a podcast now, where you where you really clearly defined. You said there's lots of differences between like combat sports and consensual fighting, and being you know attacked or you know, mugged or dealing with a criminal. And that is like, like I just gave the game away, but then it, it's, it's the idea of consent. Um, and, and when you realize if you're you know, subject to you know, non-consensual violence, you know, violence you, you don't want to happen, your job isn't to necessarily win that fight. It's, it's to you know, keep yourself safe and get out of the situation as quickly as possible. And I think from a practical perspective, that's what I'd be trying to teach. And then if you move that across to say a you know a scenario where now you're asking me there's a, there's a person on the ground i've defended myself can i hit them when on the ground my, my two points i look at here is what do you think is is about to happen next and how much time is there between the person hitting the ground and you deciding what to do i think if you act instinctively so you're in the middle of a confrontation things you know you've, you've been attacked you, you didn't want to be attacked things have happened you've hit you've hit the enemy they've fallen to the floor and you know you've instinctively you know kicked or hit or dropped down and hit them once um and then you've backed away if you don't want to go back in with your finishing move because of that that time lag i'm starting to think we're not acting instinctively and also there's a, there's a time there where you've made a conscious decision to do something and you've got to you know you you've then got to justify why you've hit somebody They've gone down, you hit them again quickly because that's what you, you did instinctively. And then maybe you've, you've had time, you've moved away and then you've gone back to hit again. 
I think any kind of finishing move where there's a delay and a conscious thought that I'm going to hit this person again, you're moving from defending yourself to you know, getting revenge or wanting to feel good about yourself. And once you cross that, that, that um, intent line of now you're, my, my intent isn't to defend myself and get away from here, it's to cause harm to somebody, you start to lose or you start to struggle to you know, claim self-defense at that point. So my answer to the question is it's always going to be case dependent. Um, but if you're acting instinctively and you're, you're honestly just trying to get out of the situation and you do what you think is necessary to do, then that's fine. But if you start adding moves on or you decide you want to, you know, do the good old Bass Rutten. I don't know if you've seen those videos, Jamie, but um, Bass yeah. Rutten's got some really funny yeah, um, no, no, stuff. Street, yeah. fighting, <laughs> street fighting videos where, you know, he, you know, he drops a guy on the floor and breaks his arm, breaks his leg. I think when you get into that, um, you're not acting instinctively now. You're taking your time. You're deliberately trying to harm somebody. So I think if you're deliberately trying to harm somebody for the sake of hurting them, that's different than being instinctively reacting and trying to get out of there. So that's my stance. I hope it's a bit difficult to explain over audio, but hopefully that's a kind of idea people can take away from this regarding finishing moves. Yeah, I remember speaking to a police officer um, oh, um, over a decade ago. Um, I was at a hard target uh, seminar. I actually do remember I was, that someone was trained to be a hard target instructor with um, and a motique, and we were teaching at the Woolwich bar Barracks at the time. And there was a police officer there, um, and uh, we had this discussion, and he succinctly put it uh, that it's whatever you do, you've got to be prepared to defend that in front of other people so and these other people aren't necessarily um a, um, a group of uh, of barristers of lawyers solicitors okay these are um this is the general public this is the jury this is you know so could you rationally justify what you've done um and 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 obviously you know there's obviously going to be the, the guidelines obviously the law because that's you know what what a um what a solicitor is going to be arguing um either way whether in prosecution or defense but you know if you can justify that and you feel that if you said that rationally to people that uh, you know I, I was uh defending myself and uh that finishing uh, not finishing move should we say but that final strike that you did before you um, exited the situation you could say well I, I did that because I had an honest held belief that uh, the person who I'd uh, just defended myself against um, was still a threat to me they, um, if, they if they immediately got back up I would uh, I, I would be in a serious situation so that's why um, I stamped on his ankle that's why I, I kicked him in the leg um, but it was done as you said the, the timeline the timeline I think is a really good guide to a lot of people tra training here it's a good um, it's definitely something I'll, I'll um, be using a lot more when in my coaching, understanding that that that, that timeline. Um, and funny enough, you know, it, it makes me just think about the, the way that uh, moving back as a comparison, and uh, certainly not the same thing, but in, into a combat sports situation, um, the way that they, they do that with Muay Thai, the fact that the way they they that you have to show in reverse, you have to show your intent with a strike when you take somebody down. In this situation, you have, your your intent is not that. I, I wanted to strike him. I, I, I struck him to stop him from immediately getting back up to become a, a threat to me. I felt that um, just because he was down didn't mean that he was not going to get straight back up and I wasn't going to be able to make the door in time. I wasn't going to be able to make the exit point in time or whatever, or whatever it was. Um, and the person is uh, bigger than me, stronger than me, um, or faster than me, should we say. And I just uh, and uh, I did that within that uh, split second. And again, I think there's a few other things in the law, isn't there, that, uh, that discuss about in, in the, in the heat of the moment to use a, a colloquial term 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's a bit of a mouthful to, to get right. Um, so and I haven't got the quote to hand, but just off the top of my head, it's something along the lines of, um, you're not expected to be able to judge the you know, exact force to a necessity. Um, it, it, the, the courts, like you said, the people who, gonna, who would unfortunately be you know, determining your fate in these instances, these, these average people, these, these lay people, um, you, they, they, they will be given guidelines to say, look, you know, exact proportionality is not you know, a necessity, it's not required. Because as I mean, you know from, from, from training, is it can be very difficult to determine how to match force in, in a confrontation which is going to last a few seconds at best. And you don't really know what kind of attacks are coming at you or how threatening they are. Um, it's only after the event when you can start to work out, okay, okay, this guy's, you know, 300 pounds or, you know, we had a knife with him. Um, then you start to realize the threat could have been a lot worse than you actually realized. So being able to work out how much threat you're under and trying to respond with the exact amount of threat, such a difficult thing to do. And you, you're not expected to do that. But like we've just spoke about earlier, um, if you, you've got to try and justify what you've done. So if, if you drop someone to the ground and you've stomped on that ankle and you've backed away and you try to get out of there, that's great. But if you drop the person on the ground, you've stomped on that ankle, you now know they can't get up and you decide instead of running away, you're going to you know, ground and pound them. That's when you start to get the issues. And tell you what, something else I just wanted to pick up on just from that discussion, as I, as I knew was going to be the case. Um, sometimes it sounds weird to say this, but I think sometimes some of the legal perimeters that we're discussing here actually um, come down in favour of it from a tactical point of view. Um, you know, when you talk about things like ground fighting and um, not just so much asymmetrical ground fighting, you've got one person standing, one person down, but you bring you both on the ground. Um, Grounding and pounding um, works great on a one-to-one -one basis. You know, it's, it's, it's a method that you would might use in um, a reality-based, I mean, I'm not keen on that expression these days, but uh, reality-based, a uh, self-defense um, point of view, uh, it's, it's a temporary position. You know, you might be, you know, get yourself on the top position, you might strike in order to extricate yourself from that person, but that's the key thing. I mean, if you get yourself in the mount position, for example, um, the person underneath it um, has got a different um, perspective when it's not one-on-one. -on -one. So if their friends are involved, they immediately you now become, you now are a target for their friends. All the person has to do underneath is to hold on to you while their friends now attack your exposed spine, kidneys, uh, medulla, all that sort of thing, you know, from, from, from behind. And they just stay underneath and they can, they can do that. So from a tactical perspective, that has, um, uh, you, you know, you know, not only from a legal point of view, where um, you, it's difficult to justify sitting on top of somebody and, and pounding them into oblivion, um, from a tactical point of view, um, when we're talking about self-defense, when the arena changes, that that has a disadvantage as well. And likewise, the revenge idea, which um, again. You know, this is often the issue when we're having to define it with self-defense. And always the thing that you're going to cross is going, everything you do, you need to defend as being, you, you were trying to do it to ensure your safety, your immediate safety, and to get yourself um, out of a violent situation rather than it's something you're doing intentionally to somebody to cause them harm because out of, out of a sense of revenge, for example. Now, um, the revenge part of it, the extra thought, the timeline that you're discussing here, that doesn't necessarily lend itself well um, to... A tactical perspective if we're talking about self-defense situations because time as I've always said um, um, when it becomes to 
when we're talking about self-protection, we're talking about self-defense, uh, is against you once the hard skills come in. So once that line between, you know, is something gonna happen, gonna become violent or not, when matters do become violent, suddenly uh, um, you are now fighting, fighting the clock. But, but very much like a first aid situation. I and mean, that's where the comparison with first aid comes in again, as far as I'm concerned. In first aid training, you're always taught, um, you know, you're fighting against the clock. Everything here is valuable. The, you know, the more time that you can, you can, uh, you can, you can, uh, uh, keep a person um, breathing or um, the more time that you've got in a situation the, the better but you're fighting against the clock you know all the time likewise in self-defense um, in it's within any given area that someone can access a weapon within about seven seconds um, that's that was the guide that Motig used to give and uh, I've often tested that whenever I, wherever I've taught I've looked around the room and I've always said you know seven seconds what, what could be used as a weapon in here what could be accessed in, in most places uh, a weapon can be accessed and the more time you're involved in the situation the more likely other people are going to get involved whether they're allies of um, the enemy or whether um, they are people who just decide they want to join in and um, and that does happen. Um, you know, we've had plenty of instances where people who are otherwise not not connected to a fight suddenly decide to be part of it. Um, so, you know, sometimes tactically, you know, we look at it from a legal point of view, and uh, you know, and that defines the self-defense. But but it often marries up from a tactical perspective. What we want to be, what we might want to believe uh, to be uh, um, beneficial to us, um, it, you know, certainly out of a sense of revenge. You know, this person has tried to kill you or has tried to kill someone you love, and therefore you feel that you're dealing them you know some form of uh, justice you know some form of vigilante justice on them it doesn't go the way of you know a punisher comic it doesn't go the way of death wish you know you know what you're, what you're looking at there is um you know other people get involved very very quickly and there are there are lots of other repercussions um and your long-term self-protection your the aftermath side of it all this is what people aren't you know citing when you look at that false dichotomy again i'd rather be you know tried by 12 than carried by six uh, they're not taking into account all the other things that will that you know that can follow from a situation um and will you be able to cope with them will you be able to cope with the repercussions i, mean, I certainly know growing up in the circus community and uh, and also having uh, some some degree of uh, traveler blood in me and that uh, you know the, the the fight isn't necessarily over with, with with the one between you and the other person you know suddenly now suddenly other people suddenly start getting involved in this um and where whereas you know you can justify self-defense you know you might have a better better chance of not having um, other people then enacting their revenge you know you get involved in this uh you know, you know, we, we talk about how much we've moved on into the 21st century, but you know, blood feuds are certainly pre pre present within different communities, I can assure you. Okay, I've just got um, about three points from um, the things you were just discussing there. You were in such good flow, I didn't want to interrupt you. But um, the last thing regarding, um, you know, blood feuds and, and revenge, I mean, um, the laws, it's a principle-based system. So I think it's interesting not just revenge and preemptive striking, but things like retreating. So there's no there's no duty to retreat um, in English law. And I think an interesting point on that is you might think, yes, practically and tactically, that's a really good thing to do. But you don't always have to do it. And when you start thinking about different examples and different scenarios, sometimes there's going to be reasons when you can't retreat. Um, so when you think about that, you start to realize there's no necessarily hard and fast set rules they're more like principles and guidelines which need to be applied in the certain facts we have um, but at the same time you've also got to justify if you didn't retreat why you didn't retreat and um, and that just flies back to everything we've said about you know and you're talking about the time of you know the timing of these um, altercations and how quickly they 
they occur. And if you have a chance to retreat and keep yourself safe and you don't, well, you don't have a duty to do so. There's no law saying you must retreat. You've, you've still got to justify why you didn't. So, and that's just another way of how the law works, which I thought was interesting to, to show and the difference sometimes between what's legally allowed and what's probably tactically better to do. Sometimes they don't always match up exactly. And just, just interesting what you mentioned when we talked about you know, the front mounts and ground and pound and being held on. This was actually one of the first times during my training when I started to see a big difference between the, you know, the one-on-one fighting, the consensual fighting where you're fighting each other and the self-defense wise. And that's when I realized very quickly that you know, the side mount or side control, the self-protection, I find a far better useful um, tool to have. Because when you're on the side, at least my legs aren't as tied up as they are when you're on the full mount. Now, I think most combat sports would say that you know, the, the front mount's in far better position. But when you look at it from a self-protection point of view, I find being on the side, even though it's still not ideal, is, is a better position because I have more of an ability to move, get to my feet, and get up from that person who's grabbing me. And I just wanted to just add on to that from what you were saying. And, and another question I get asked about what if scenarios and weapons is, um, and this is often a question from females, is about keys. Is if I'm walking home, there's a stranger around, should I put um, a key between my fingers? Am I allowed to carry a key or some kind of like weapon or you know, key ring or something in my hand to protect myself? And when it comes to keys, I, I always find my answer is like from, a, from, from using an incidental weapon or um, using any kind of weapon, yes, you can, you know, depending on the circumstances again, you can use this weapon to defend yourself against somebody. But from a practical aspect, I'm, I'm not too sure about whether I am confident to tell women to, to one, you put the key visible, have the key in their hand where it could get lost or at worst, you know, stolen by the attacker. I'm not sure how much these people train with their keys. So illegally you can do it, but practically I wouldn't recommend it. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, statistically we're told certainly with, with, with knife crime that uh, the majority, um, I think it's just over half, about around 60%, uh, again, I have to just do brushing up on my QAP course on that one. But um, that the that people, the victims of uh, um, a knife attack, um, injury from a knife in a in a violent situation, are the owner of that blade, of the owner of that weapon. So that should that should give us some indication. So I know there was a good debate on the Randy King um, podcast about this one, about whether um, uh, because obviously you know America's got it's a US podcast and America's got different laws um, with regards to the carrying of weapons and uh, the argument with um, is it uh, better to carry um, a, a weapon anyway or um, or if you carry a weapon should you know how to be trained in that weapon now, I've always come down heavily on that you need training okay so that's why I think you know training in incidental weapons is, is a very important part of uh, foundational uh, self-protection as time's gone on I've, I've thought more and more that it, it's point and I think that comes probably from um, growing up around uh, wild animals I've seen my background with the circus with the zoo and all that sort of thing so where you know, I've seen animal escapes before and I'm, I've known God knows how many different stories about different people have been attacked by uh, dangerous wild animals, which is, you know, the equivalent of being attacked by uh, edged weapons, uh, blunt instruments, and certainly where you've got, you know, you're in a situation where you're completely disadvantaged by um, a- another living uh, creature. And of course, this is where incidental weaponry comes in, you know, and you, and you're, you, you, are, you are taught that as, as survival when you're going around a, um, to traveling circus. I mean, not so much anymore, certainly not in the UK, but... Um, 
it was certainly when, when we were being brought up um, we were taught how to you know get bar barriers in between us and uh, and an animal like a lion or a tiger uh, and how to use them to uh, to fend them off and again that's kind of like the, the same principle that was often carried on when you know you'd be being attacked by someone with a weapon um, you know this is advice that I'd, that I'd hear from people who've been on the circus who obviously you know had dealt with different confrontations with human beings as well as as well as animals um, and it was the same thing you know it was you, you, you know the you need to you should um, pick up something but you should know how to use it and again you know fighting against another another human being who's got that intent um, and you haven't practiced with with the weapon then you are relying a lot on luck to be honest um, and uh, whatever instincts yeah. you have available in that kind of situation so I'm very much on the dance on the side of learn how to uh, work with incidental weaponry uh, don't uh, I'm not going to advise any of my students to carry around uh, things that could be used as incidental weapons but to be mindful of whatever everyday items that they might have on them uh, for a primary use to know understand their, their use as a weapon as a, as a secondary use should they face a self-defense situation um, so yeah I, I, I'm always you know even when I've heard people who've um, I, I knew somebody who came over from the continent again a circus person who had um who, who, who got uh, she got challenged by a police officer i don't think she got charged um for having uh, mace or um, no, no pepper spray this was it was pepper spray from out in uh, in europe um she was searched when she went into the uh, winter gardens up at uh, um no, so sorry, another winter gardens. Uh, the, the the big event that we have on London at uh, around around Christmas time. Um, but anyway, um, which, uh, I'm sure she's perfectly capable of, of using it. But it still highlighted the the issue with me was that yeah, it's all well and good, um, and even if it's legally defensible. Uh, places like um, in Europe and the US where you can carry a weapon again. Um, it's you know fair enough you know you, you, um, you know when in Rome do as the Romans do I mean you know I'm not against taking advantage of what it's like in a uh, in whatever country that you're in um, and what the laws um, permit in self-defense because there are different environments for that kind of thing I mean I had I had uh, two clients who came to me who were going to go live in South Africa that's a classic example and I said to them um, as a duty of care um, if you're going to go live in South Africa um, the type of crime you're likely to face over there is one that involves firearms. Um, and that is a big, big relevant part of it. Um, even though I've done firearm disarms and I've trained off people who, um, who've got relevant experience with that, um, it's certainly not my area of specialty. It's certainly an area that I need to, to work on in that kind of instance, but I would be more interested in, uh, and I think it would be important for me as a duty of care to point you in the right direction of a firearms instructor in South Africa um, who teaches firearms for the purpose of self-protection. Self so I immediately got onto my car who live in South Africa um, and, uh, and they're very keyed up on all this sort of thing and they put them in touch with a good uh, firearms teaching school um, that, that teach it for self-protection over there and, and I remember one of them had a you know a few issues with regards to the use of firearms I mean, um, and I was saying well you know, you know we can't I can't realistically be teaching you self self-protection 
um, if you're going to you're going to have that kind of uh, barrier in, in in the way. I mean, this is this will be the elephant in the room. You know, the fact that the chances are the person that you will face over there will be armed with their, um, with, with a firearm. I'll teach you um, unarmed um, responses, and we can do we can go through all the program as as I teach. It's very principle based, but it, you know it's important for me that if you've you've learned this off me, that I've pointed you in the right direction for the firearms training. So that was you know that you know that was relevant to that that kind of situation. So yeah, training is important. Um, and you and uh, again, um, being mindful of uh, incident weapons important. But it, but um, again, you know this you know this is you know this is the reality we, you know we we face. Um, yeah, you know weapons are you know are, are part and parcel of, of self protection training, um, and and people need to be ready to do that. Uh, the the problem also with somebody who who is untrained or who only exclusively trains with with weapons um, is that reliance on the weapon. In the reliance that they're going to be um, be able to use that to defend themselves, and that can um, uh, disproportionately raise their levels of, of confidence. You get overconfidence um, because you're carrying a weapon, which will then you know they might get themselves in a situation where they're endangering themselves, um, and also they've got no backup if they if they can't use their weapon, they can't access their weapon, um, and he, he, and that even counts with uh, you know incidental weaponry. Yeah, and a few points which I just want to jump on there is, um, and if we look at the UK first. There's almost an irony with with our weapon laws, which I'm I'm sure you know. But if it's we have, we have kind of like three classes of weapon, we have, we have the weapons which are you know which are you know intended to be a weapon. They are weapons made as weapons. We have items which are not necessarily weapons um, when they were initially made, but they've been adapted. modified. Yeah, yeah, modified. Or then we've got things which are weapons and haven't been adapted for use, but the intent is to use them as weapons. Yes, yeah, and I yeah. always. I always worry that if, if you get really good at using, like, I don't know, an umbrella or a pen as a weapon and you train it daily and daily and daily and weekly and monthly or yearly, and then you carry with you, um, you're carrying it with you as a weapon. So the only way to get good at defending yourself with a incidental weapon, to have the intent to be able to use it as a weapon. And at that point, I start to think, has it become a, you know, an illegal weapon in itself? So it's, it's almost like a self-prophesizing circle there. Yes, yeah, definitely. And and I think, again, this brings us back to the whole, um, the benefits of having a principled, uh, centred approach to, to, to training. You know, if you train in center weaponry, um, again, there's certain weapons that specifically you have to... Uh, you have to have knowledge of firearms being a classic example of that. Um, again, if you're if you're in an environment where um, firearms are in regular use and you're going to be there for a long period of time, then, then learning how to train in uh, the appropriate firearms and, that, uh, and that, uh, on that side of it is uh, is very important. But for uh, certainly in the UK, where then it's they're not so uh, readily used and uh, we're more likely to be attacked by. Uh, someone with a bladed weapon um, or a blunt instrument or something like that. Um, we. We, there's plenty of uh, base principles to defend against that and to use incidental weaponry against those kind of situations that we can we can work on with, you know as, as uh, good principles um, so you know they can be trained they can be adapted and you're then not completely reliant on carrying that certain um, item with, with you um, and uh, not having to justify it so much and if you've got several different items you know as I said before when I you know instruct my, my clients uh, and students to say that you know you know, look at your regular everyday items that you've you know that where their primary use is you know, 
whether it's a mobile phone or a torch um, or, or, or whatever it is that you decide to use regularly, let's say, you know, out here in the countryside, for example. It's funny enough, we've got, we've got a, bit of a, a bit of a contradiction going on here because we've got relatively very, very low crime rates out here. But at the same time, we've got the, uh, what has been publicised as the biggest crime family um, live around this area in the UK. So, it's, uh, you know, you've got the two things going on there. Yeah, yeah use of um, the, the intended weapons and, and having that sort of principle-based approach, that, that really does justify using that, especially if, that, if then some of those principles can be adapted to unarmed uh, situations too. Exactly, yeah. You're, 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 the way you're training there is you're not just having somebody pick up one item and train it to an extent where it's, it's going to become a weapon. So I'm completely with you. And, and the other point you mentioned, especially, uh, I think it's quite quite interesting we can delve into this topic here is when you mentioned about being in students going to South Africa is you start to realize self-protection and as well as self-defense or self-protection is different depending on lots of different variables like geography, time and history, um, gender, age, all, all these things are make self-protection different and it, it can be unique for different groups. So I wondered if you just wanted to have a little chat about maybe the difference, I know this is a, one of your your passions, one of your expertise, the difference between self-protection for adults and self-protection for you know, children, young children and, and uh, maybe teens. The story will continue on Lee Sims's Striking Thoughts podcast when we discuss several other topics including the post-pandemic martial arts. Please subscribe to this excellent show and check out his previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out Lee's book, UK Self-Defence Law, A Practical Guide to Understanding the Law of Defending Yourself. If you're a UK citizen or are thinking of travelling to the UK once this pandemic situation is abated, then it is an essential part of your self-protection and martial arts collection, available both as an e-book and a paperback. For those of you interested in the practical application of martial arts, Lee's earlier book, 10 Keys to Unlocking Practical Katabunkai, deserve your serious consideration as well. Vijay Pathak of Forest Schools of Karate has scheduled me to teach two hours of my When Parents Aren't Around children's self-protection workshop and three hours of my Vagabond Warriors adult martial arts cross-training workshop. I'm very grateful of this early booking from Vijay and his faith in my abilities. The event was booked for the 7th of June at the Ridgeway Sports Academy. I've no idea what the lockdown and quarantine restrictions are going to be like around that time, but please keep an eye on Vijay's events to see how matters unfold. One way or another, we're going to get this going. And one thing's for sure, once we're through all this, we're going to have a great time training together again let's work hard towards that day in the meantime please take advantage of the online resources available to you i hope to be running a train along webinar via zoom and i'm providing one-to-one training or even your entire household via skype as always you can catch me on facebook twitter linkedin instagram google and youtube please like and subscribe to these places if you haven't subscribed to this podcast please do so via itunes stitcher tuned in and most other popular podcast platforms. Please write a five-star review, if you can, wherever you find this show, or Club Chimera in general. It helps tremendously with everything, including getting more content out for you. The next episode of this show will be a special full train-along edition. Using mixed martial arts and consensual or symmetrical fighting as our model, I will take you through a full workout, including a warm-up and five rounds of shadow sparring. There will be instruction-based combinations, visualisation exercises, and martial arts-specific calisthenics. I've even filmed a video of me training along to the audio. Don't miss it. However, before you listen to that episode, don't forget to download the latest episode of Striking Thoughts for the second part of Lee and my discussion. Keep safe and keep healthy. Thank you for listening.